The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Heavenly Father, we ask you to speak. Lord, we come to engage you. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So we are in the middle of a series, actually kind of towards the tail end of a series called How to Read Your Bible. And we've been looking and saying, okay, God's word, scripture tells us that the Bible is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, it shows us who our God is, it shows us who we are, and it shows us how to live. And we've been going through all the major genres of scripture. And we started off in Old Testament narrative, and then we talked about the prophets, then we talked about the gospels, the epistles. Last week we did the psalms, and we went through and talked about how there's different genres of psalms, some of lament, some of celebration, some of courage. And today we're going to get into wisdom literature. And I do just want to make one last plug. If you guys weren't here last week, we put together bookmarks called How to Read Your Bible. Literally something that you can stuff in your Bible. It's got some questions that any chapter of the Bible you'd be able to ask. But on the back, it also has all the major genres that we've been talking about and saying, all right, so if you're in the book of Proverbs or if you're in the book of Psalms or if you're in the Gospels, what's kind of the main emphasis? So we've got more of those in the back. So if you didn't get a chance to grab a couple, feel free to. But today we are in wisdom literature. And wisdom literature for me is one of the more interesting ones as a pastor, because oftentimes when people think about the Bible, they think, okay, the Bible talks about spiritual things. The Bible talks about things like God and sin and brokenness, and for sure it does. But sometimes we limit the Bible to just these very spiritual, non-earthly, non-physical things, non-practical things. But when you get into the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Job, what you realize is they are very practical. In fact, they're very philosophical. And so we're going to walk through three of those books today, kind of the overarching narrative between the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, because all of them are really telling one large story. There's a connection. We're going to see how that connection works between all of them. But before we do that, we have to understand who Solomon was, because Solomon wrote most of the Proverbs, and he was also at least based off of Ecclesiastes. And Solomon's an interesting story. Because his story begins, he's the son of David. He is the third king of Israel. He's born into a season of peace, and he gets a rather unique offer from God. I like to call it the genie in the lamp offer. Right? You know, you rub the lamp, genie pops up and says, I'll give you whatever you wish. That's what God says to Solomon. Think about that. God comes to you and says, I will give you anything. God says, I will give you money if you want money. He tells Solomon, I will give you power if you want power. So Solomon, what do you want? What Solomon says is, I want wisdom. And God answers and says, I'm going to give you wisdom. But because you asked for wisdom, not riches, not power, he goes, I'm going to give you both of those too. 
And so Solomon becomes, as the Bible says, the wisest man in the world. He also becomes one of the richest men in the world and one of the most powerful kings of the world in that time. And Saul takes that wisdom and he writes the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs starts off and really gets into it in... Let's see. Technology today is not our friend, is it? Wait for it. There we go. Proverbs 3. I think I got it. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David. So this is that wise guy, king of Israel. And he says, These Proverbs are for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding the words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Right? This is very applicable. He says, I am writing this so you will be wise, so you will know how to live, so you will know how to act, so you will understand right from wrong. This is deeply practical. And he says, let the wise listen and add to their learning. So says, don't, don't peak, right? Don't peak. I don't want to peak in my wisdom at age 34. That's a very slow, a very low bar, right? My wife would not be okay if I peaked at 34. She'd probably be a little upset with me, right? For the understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and the riddles of the wise. And then he says this. And this phrase, the fear of the Lord, becomes the key to understanding actually each of these books. He says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. You look throughout all of scriptures, a common thing happens again and again and again. God says, we are to fear the Lord. And to be completely honest with you, open and up front, I used to not like that phrase. Because when I would think of what it means to fear something, I would think, well, that's not a relationship I want. I don't want to be in a relationship where I have to be afraid of someone, where I have to be terrified about what they might do. Right? But as I studied Scripture, in fact, as you look in Hebrew and that word fear, what you find is that it's not talking about terror. It's talking about respect. It's saying we're supposed to respect God, understand who he is, what type of powerful being he is, what type of relationship we have with him. The easiest way I can think about it is think about fire, right? So if you have a campfire in your backyard, do you sit in terror of this campfire? Right? Are you just sitting around and being like, oh my gosh, it could burn me up at any second. It could go into a big explosion. No, right? At the same time, while you're not terrified of the campfire, are you going to put your hand in the middle of it? No, because you respect fire. You respect the heat. You respect its power. You understand it has a purpose. You're not terrified of it, but you do respect it. And when it comes to our God, he not only demands respect, he actually deserves it. We have a God who is all-powerful, a God who can literally speak existence into reality, a God who can raise the dead, a God who can part the seas. Oftentimes we think of our hallmark God, right? This guy sitting up in clouds, big bushy beard, kind of relaxing, almost looks like Zeus. Maybe he looks like your grandpa, I don't know. And we get this idea that God is this fluffy being. What we see in Scripture is, no, he's not. And that doesn't mean he doesn't love us. That doesn't mean we don't have a relationship with us. But to begin to understand wisdom, 
To understand what God is trying to do, we have to understand who our God is and give him that respect. Build that into how we relate to him and then how we relate to each other. So the beginning of wisdom, it says, is the fear of the Lord. And then when you're in Proverbs, um, you get this idea of wisdom. It says, does not wisdom call out? Does, the understanding, does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate, leading into the city at your entrance, she cries aloud, to you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. You are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips and speak to what is right. My mouth speaks what is true. My lips detest wickedness. All the words of my mouth are just. None of them is crooked or perverse. To the discerning, all of them are right. They are upright to those who found knowledge. Choose my instruction instead of silver. Knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. God says wisdom is the foundation that he built the world with. When we read through Proverbs, he says it was through wisdom that God constructed reality. It was through his insight, his understanding, his system, his plan. And then when you read through Proverbs, what it says is God wants to give us insight into how he built the world, into how it's designed to work, what righteousness looks like, what justice looks like, what love looks like, what patience looks like. And then he writes an entire book to give us insight into the world he created. And so when we look at Proverbs, there's three major purposes. A, it is practical. It is deeply practical. It actually helps us figure out what to do in specific situations. One of the most transformative statements I've ever seen, or actually transformative life changes. I was working on, or not working, <laughs> I was working with a uh, member of my church up north, and he had had a rough life, uh, and he had made some really bad decisions. He, had, uh, he was a pharmacist, and he started making his own drugs, and he lost everything. He lost his family, he lost his career, and he had gone into recovery, He'd been sober for about a year and a half, and he had just been allowed to see his kids again. At this point, he's divorced, but he's just celebrating the fact that he could see his kids. And he gets together with me, and he says, Josh, I want to learn what God has for me. I want to learn how I'm supposed to act. And so we started reading through Proverbs together. And every week, we'd get together, and we'd read a different proverb, different chapter, and we'd talk through what that looks like. And one of the Proverbs was, remember the wife of your youth. And he had an option at that point. He could say, you know what? I'm going to try to date someone else. He goes, or I'm going to try to be faithful, and I'm going to see what this could look like if I can repair my life. Two years later, I got to officiate the marriage of him and his ex-wife with his kids there on the beach in Tampa Bay. And literally, he held to that proverb, remember the wife of your youth. It's like, maybe God has something here. It's deeply practical. And more than that, though, it's also how God provides for us. Right? Now, I'm not going completely down. God provides for those who provide for themselves. I'm not running down that list, right? 
At the same time, though, one of the ways God provides for us is he gives us insight through the book of Proverbs, through Ecclesiastes, even through Job. He designed the Bible as a whole, in part, to provide for us, to help us understand what do we do? What does daily bread look like? What does work look like? And the last thing that you see in Proverbs is this contrast between fools and the wise. And again and again and again in Proverbs, it almost becomes laughable at points. God says, the fools, it ain't going to end well for them. And the biggest contrast there is this. Well, here, we'll read. As a dog returns to its own vomit, so fools repeat their folly. Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than them. This theme of the fool is massive in Proverbs. And it's almost always contrasted with the wise. And so what's that contrast? Between respecting God and trusting in your own best thinking. You read through Proverbs, and it talks about righteousness. It talks about good living. It talks about good morals. But our own best thinking can get us out of that sometimes. Our own best thinking says, yeah, I know, I probably shouldn't say this, but they've been a real jerk today. Our own best thinking says, you know, I, 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 I know these are God's resources, not mine, but I really want that. Our own best thinking gets us into all kinds of trouble. And when you read through the Proverbs, what you see is there is a deep contrast between respecting God respecting his plan, his system, and living in accordance with it. Or conversely, say, no, I got a better idea. And the overarching narrative of Scripture is whenever we show up and say, I've got a better idea, that's when sin comes in. That's when brokenness comes in. That's when hurt comes in. That's where relationships are destroyed between us and God and us and each other. And so a common theme through Proverbs is that. But Proverbs do have a limitation. A limitation is this. It's how the world works the majority of the time. Because you could read through Proverbs, and you could do a faithful reading and say, well, God said this. If I do this, this is going to be the outcome. The righteous will prosper. The evil will be smited. You get this Proverbs. It says, the one whose walk is blameless is kept safe, but the ones whose ways are perverse will fall into a pit. But does that always happen? Have you ever watched the news? Right? These rulers in countries that just absolutely devastate their people. The wealthy who use their wealth to skirt justice. The majority of the time, Proverbs are going to work, but then there are going to be times where it doesn't. And that is where Ecclesiastes comes in. Remember, Solomon's both over Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes starts off, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, said the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Wow! That's an uplifting way to start a book of the Bible. Right? This idea that <laughs> there's no point. 
That word meaningless, though, first and foremost, we've got to translate. It means vapor. It means the morning mist. The book starts off, and it says, vapor, vapor. Everything is like the morning mist. You ever seen that in the morning? Actually, today was probably a really good one to notice it. You look out over your grass, you look over a field, and you see that vapor coming up. And when you're looking at it, it looks like something you should be able to touch. It looks like something you should be able to grab onto. It looks like it's solid. But if you were to go out there, as soon as you got into it, you'd realize it's not solid. It's not a foundation. It's not something physical. It disappears as soon as it comes. And when you look through the book of Ecclesiastes, again and again and again, Solomon says, vapor. And again, if anyone had an opportunity to figure out the purpose of the world, it would be Solomon. He had all the resources at his disposal. He had all the wisdom. He had all the money. He had all the power, the prestige. And quite frankly, Solomon did not live a perfect life. As wise as he was, he made all kinds of mistakes. He trusted in God, but he also allowed others not to trust in God. He ended up marrying a bunch of people, like hundreds of people. Solomon is not someone to base your life around, but he tried it all. And when you look through Ecclesiastes, you see in chapter 1, wisdom is vapor. Then I applied myself to understanding wisdom and also the madness and folly, but I learned this too is chasing after the wind, he says. And then he literally goes through chapter 2, pleasure and work. Nope, they're vapor. If you think you are going to find meaning, ultimate purpose in pleasure, he goes, I tried it, it doesn't happen. He says, oh, you think it's going to be in your toil, in your job, in your work? He goes, nope, that's going to leave you empty too. Chapter uh, 4, he says, oh, you think you're going to advance in your job, you think you're going to build your kingdom, and that's going to give you a foundation. He goes, nope, that, that too is like the morning mist. Chapter 5, he goes, I made more money than everybody. I had it all. He goes, and that, that's meaningless too. Then you get to chapter 9, and it gets really depressing. And he goes, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much power you have. It doesn't matter how good of a life you lived. Because everyone dies. And he goes, all that stuff you built up, it's not going to be a foundation to stand upon. And if this is where the book ended, it would just be depressing. But it doesn't. The very last statement in Ecclesiastes says this. Now that all has been, oh, oh. Now that all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For the, this is the duty of all mankind for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. He says, you want to know what your foundation is? You want to know what is not meaningless? Respecting God. Building your foundation on him and what he is doing and who he is. He says, everything else. He says, while can be fun, while can be good in its rightful place, at the end of the day, it is not a foundation that you can stand upon. 
And so he goes back to the fear of the Lord, respecting God, understanding who our God is. And so we have Proverbs, which serves as a guide to understanding how God works, how the world works, and how we work inside of it. We have Ecclesiastes, which helps us remember, you know what, our own best thinking, all the things we think are going to make us happy, no, they're not going to provide us a foundation to stand upon. But that still doesn't answer the question of why is there hurt in the world? Why is there brokenness in the world? And that's where the book of Job comes in. So we're going to watch one of the uh, How to Read Your Bible videos. We've been using those to kind of help us take us through this series. And it's going to focus specifically on the book of Job. And the question it's trying to answer. There are three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. The first, Proverbs, showed us that God is wise and just. Yeah, we learned that God has ordered the world so that it's fair. The righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished. In other words, you get what you deserve. But then we meet Ecclesiastes who observes, well, people don't always get what they deserve. Uh, yeah, he said the world isn't always fair, that life is unpredictable and hard to comprehend, just like smoke. And this makes you wonder, okay, well, is God wise and just? Exactly. And so it's that question that is being explored in the final book of wisdom, Job. All right, let's dive in. So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they're all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job, his servant, showing how righteous and good he is. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan. Who is this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters one and two. But then in chapter three, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals his devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. 
But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person, and God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is, and he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world, things that we might see every day but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. So. Where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered, and yet he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. This complex world we live in, a God who is infinitely larger than I think we could imagine, right? bigger, stronger, it answers the question, not by answering it, why is there pain? Why is there suffering? But by the idea that God is in control of everything, all the moving pieces, all the moving parts. And he is dynamically interacting with all of those. It's so the idea that we would understand why one thing happens to me without realizing the bigger picture of the universe and everything God's doing there, it wouldn't make sense to me, right? And in a way, you could say, okay, well, that's fair, but quite frankly, that's terrifying. Because if that's the only picture we had of God, that he was running the entire world, that would leave us not necessarily at his mercy, but at the system's mercy. Because we're just a speck, right? We're just this little dust in this eternal universe. What's beautiful for the church is that the book of Job is not the only book of the Bible. It doesn't, it's the, uh, the final statement of who our God is or what our God is doing. What we see is this. In Romans 8, Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? 
What we find in Jesus is the heart of God. His passion for relationship. His passion for relationship with us. And so what we find in Scripture is a tension. A God who was in charge of the entire cosmos. A God who was working in a thousand, a million, a billion different ways that we would never be able to comprehend. And yet a God who says, I know your name. A God who says, I know every hair on your head. And I want to be your father. I want to be your individual hero. I want to be your individual guide and compass bearing in the Holy Spirit. We have a God who says, I want an intimate relationship with you, and I also want to run the universe. And so when we look at wisdom, when we look at the world, when we look at the philosophical questions of why is there evil or anything else, we are left with nothing but a relationship with a God who says, trust me, respect me. I promise I will take care of you. And we see that in Christ, right? Because our deepest problem, our deepest challenge was this sin thing was our own best thinking thing. All the times where we got out of sync with God's wisdom, with God's justice. We were all in rebellion. God shows up and he says, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to bring you onto my team. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to forgive you. And then he says, so trust me. Even when your perspective is not seeing the bigger picture, He says, you are loved, you are cared for, you are not alone, and we have a God that is not meaningless, a God who is not vapor, a foundation we can stand on, that even when the storms come, Jesus says, if you build on me this rock, it will withstand the storm. The storm will pass. At the end of the day, we will see God's goodness, God's justice, God's righteousness. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you humbled by our limited perspective. But also in mourning that there is still pain in our lives. Lord, we've come before you, a good God who is in control, and we offer you the control of our lives. Lord, and there are times when we cry out mercy because like Job, we are in the whirlwind and it feels like everything's falling apart. And so in those times, Lord, we ask for a merciful God who still interacts and moves in the life of his children. Or sometimes we offer shouts of celebration, Lord, when we are in rhythm with you and we get to see the fruit of that. And so in those times, Lord, we also present that good to you, that praise to you. Lord, ultimately, we thank you for sending your son to show us your heart, show us your passion for people, passion for individuals, Lord, so that we can not only trust and respect you, but love you and embrace you as a child to their father. Lord, we say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.